Well, good morning. Good morning. The uh, children are now invited to their classrooms downstairs. It's good to gather with you again on this Lord's Day morning. Those who were here last Sunday know that we sang uh, that same song at that time. At the conclusion of uh, Andre's message, a message that really detailed our uh, glorious redemption that came by way of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a new song, a relatively new song to us, but church, it is one that we must learn. And so this, this morning, I asked Frank to sing it again, and this time place it before the sermon, so that as we come to the Word of God together, we can come with this sense, kind of this call to action, that we come indeed to behold this wondrous mystery. And so with that, will you please turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 21. Every good story has three essential components, a beginning, middle, and end. And the beginning introduces us to the context and key characters, as well as the conflict they're facing. The middle, of course, develops both the characters and the conflict, uh, dealing honestly with both, while the end brings the conflict to a right resolution and provides hope for a much, much, much better future. And I share that this morning because... This is precisely the narrative of the Bible. The Bible is the divine record of beginnings and endings and everything in between. The Bible describes from where we have come and to where we are going, dealing honestly with our human condition while also detailing what God has done, what God is doing. And what God will do through the course of human history. The Bible is a story of redemption. An absolutely true story, which is what we have considered together this Advent season. We began where it all began, with creation itself. From Genesis 1 and 2, we learned that God is good. And that all that He does is good. Unmatched in every way, God created all things, including man and woman, and He declared them very good, and He provided for them generously with all that is good, and He walked with them personally. But by Genesis 3, we find that we have turned from God and His goodness to go our own way, Consequently, falling from glory and God's 
glorious purpose for our lives. And yet, as great as our fall was and is, God is greater still. For God has provided a way of salvation in the person of the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who entered our plight to redeem us from sin and restore us to God. But the biblical storyline, dear people, it doesn't end there. Even today, even today, even in the circumstances of life today, we're yet in the middle chapters, as it were. For there's more good news to come. A conclusion that has not yet arrived, the consummation of all things. And by consummation, we, need, we mean the perfect completion of God's redemptive work to be fulfilled when Christ comes again. For the first three weeks... We have, for the first three weeks in this series, we have looked back at what God has done. This morning, I want to look forward to what God will do. And so it's fitting that having begun in Genesis, we now end in Revelation. There, near the end of this prophetic book, the curtain is drawn to reveal what lies ahead. In the ending chapters of this book, we read of the return of Christ and the defeat of Satan and the, and the great judgment to come. And then we come to chapter 21 and we read of things made new. And it's this vision, specifically verses 1 through 5, that I want to consider with you this morning. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. And my thesis is simply this, that which God has begun, He will perfect to the glory of His name and for the everlasting good of His beloved people. And so will you turn there with me and let's read it together. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Apostle John is recording this incredible vision he was made to see. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, it was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every single tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Oh, our high and holy and heavenly Father, how great is your unfailing love. And how devoted you are to your good purposes and to your redeemed people. We gather this morning as just a small company of the redeemed to rejoice in you, to thank you, to acknowledge your worth, to remember our great salvation, to celebrate all that you have done to redeem us from sin and death and restore us to yourself. And yet there is not a day that goes by, not a day that goes by, where we do not long for more. As many as your blessings are, and as great as they are, and they are many and they are great, Lord, still our souls ache for more. And here we turn in your word to read of more. More blessing, more honor, more glory that you have in store for your people. And so, Father, will you please, please comfort our souls this morning with your promise of more and be our all in all. Through Christ we pray. Amen. There is glory to come which we have not yet known. At present, we know and enjoy it by faith, by faith, 
But the time is coming when faith will become sight, when all that we have longed for and even more than we have anticipated will be realized in full. Loved ones, I want you to know we who are in Christ Jesus await the consummation of all things because God Himself is making all things new. Beholding this future glory, the Apostle John has written here in Revelation 21, verse 1, when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And so we're told here of a new, crea- a new heaven and a new earth, a-, a day when creation itself will be renewed and restored by God. And it's not that God will just scrap creation as it is now to simply start over, but that He will renew creation and even redeem it. You see, there's this continuity between who we are now and who we are to become in glory. And so also is there this continuity between heaven and earth now and what they become in glory. There's continuity between the present and the future, though the future is superior by far. So when it talks about heaven and earth passing away, it's referring to the passing away of creation in its fallen state, but not creation itself. And so even as we read, as, uh, as Andre read for us this morning from Romans chapter 8, we're told that the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The, the whole purpose of God's redemptive plan is not to replace the old with the new, but hear this, to transform the old into the new. So when we read, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the person you were before you were converted to Christ no longer exists but rather that you have been born again by the Spirit of God and are thus being transformed into someone much, much better. The doctrine of redemption itself implies a broken past that becomes by God's grace a healed and gloriously whole future. God has purposed to redeem and He is in fact redeeming both creation and creature At present, creation groans, and so do we. Do we not groan? Do our souls not ache? Do we not instinctively know there's something more? We wait eagerly for full and final redemption to be revealed at the consummation of all things. Redemption's full and future enjoyment is explained further in verse 2. And I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John sees and begins to describe a city, a holy city, the 
holy city. And this city he calls New Jerusalem, and it descends from heaven, and it unites, essentially uniting heaven and earth. John sees this heavenly city as coming from God, prepared as a bride for her groom. And he's mixing his metaphors, notice. He described it as both a city and a bride, both a place and a person. Were we to read further, we'd look and find in verses 9 and 10 that the angel does the same. Saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so the city is a bride, the bride who is the redeemed and glorified church, that great company of Christian believers from every place and nation throughout history that is destined to enjoy unmarred relationship with God without hindrance or obstacle. So the city is a bride who is the redeemed and glorified church. Destined for unmarred relationship with God without hindrance or obstacle. I have never been a bride. But I have been a groom awaiting his bride. I know what it is to count down the days, the hours, the minutes. And to this, to this day, I still remember standing at the altar with my groomsmen by my side as the bridesmaids made their way down the aisle and took their place to their places to this side. And I was, I remember I was as calm as I could be. I was amazed by how calm I was. until the doors of the church closed. Only to open again and reveal my bride in glory. And the sheer wonder of the moment overwhelmed me. I mean it. I was a wreck. And in our wedding ceremonies today, we stand for the bride. We honor the bride. We glory in the bride. And that's just a small picture of what awaits us in glory. What John glimpsed in those moments was a picture of perfect communion with God and he tries to articulate the sheer wonder of it all and later in this passage we learn that he that that he saw the holy city as a perfect cube 
identical in length and width and height, which is significant because the only other cube that's detailed in Scripture is the most holy place or the holy of holies, that sacred inner room of the tabernacle and temple in which God himself was known to dwell. I'm really struggling here. Pray for me. (coughs) Being very patient. But unlike the Holy of Holies, into which only one man could enter just one day per year, and even then only to atone for sin, the new city to come will be readily available to all of God's people at all times. Did you hear that? Like a bride, we are being prepared for that incredible experience even today, it says in verse 2, so that not only is God preparing for us, He is preparing us for Him so that we will dwell with Him in perfect union. The coming city of God is the Holy of Holies perfected. There we will meet with God, not to atone for sin, but as those who by Christ's atonement have been redeemed from sin forevermore. John's vision is a spectacular view of full communion with God to be freely enjoyed by all who are His. Fullness that John not only saw, but also heard. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. This whole picture is one of unhindered and glorious relationship between the Creator and His creatures as it was in the beginning before the fall. You see, at present, we are still tainted by sin and we live in a sin-ravaged world, but a day is coming, people, when sin will be no more. Can you imagine that? When your faith and your struggle to remain faithful will be vindicated in glory and the communion you share with God now, ebbing and flowing as it may, will be realized in full to be fully enjoyed in every way. That we are being prepared for that day implies that we are still in process. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived yet. We still experience sin and its effects. And our sin, listen, our sin even affects our present relationship with God. Right? Our sin still serves occasionally as a barrier. But then and there we will enjoy Him without even the hint of sin. And so the promise of verse 3 that we will dwell with God is developed further in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things will have passed away. 
You know, sometimes the best way to describe something is by describing what it's not. And that's what's going on here. Earlier in verse 1, John observed that the sea was no more. And to the ancients, and the ancient Hebrews in particular, the sea was just a picture of danger and destruction, of total chaos and evil. But when God's redemptive work is consummated, when new life with God is fully revealed, there will be no more danger or despair. Today, today, we have tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, but imagine life in, when there, in which there is no sorrow or even the hint of sadness. No more, no more random shootings. No more terrorist attacks. No more, no more crime of any sort. No more fiscal cliffs. No more unemployment. No more sickness. No more disease, no more tumors, no more physical disabilities or mental handicaps, no more chronic pain, no more loss of loved ones, no more broken or strained relationships, no more death, no more bad news, and no more threat of these things because sometimes the mere threat of them can be as bad or worse than the things themselves. No more sin and no more of sin's effects. No more temptation to sin. At the consummation of all things, all shall be whole and holy. And therefore, every aspect of life shall be happy in the fullest, most meaningful sense of that word. God Himself will tend to us and tenderly wipe every tear from your eyes and nothing at all will make us even the slightest bit sad or fearful. Can you imagine? Listen to this description. This is how Isaiah pictured it. The prophet Isaiah. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. It won't be this man-eating flesh eating savage animal anymore. It'll eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
creation will be perfectly restored and at last our worship of God will be completely untainted by sin. Imagine living in a resurrection body that is entirely free from sin's curse. Imagine living with God without feeling a need to hide your shame. Imagine living with each other and with other creatures in perfect communion, free from fear or suspicion. As Christian believers, already we are freed from sin's penalty and power and that sin no longer has dominion over us, but a day is coming at the consummation of all things when we will be freed from sin's presence as well as its penalty and power. And thus, for the person who trusts in Christ, eternity to come is the glorious uniting of heaven and earth that surpasses the limits of human imagination, how glorious it will be to enjoy God and newness of life with God and newness of life with God together when God consummates all things according to His good and perfect will. This is what John saw and heard. And then he heard Him who was seated on the throne Again, in verse 5, this time saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, God said. Write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And can I just simply remind you this morning from the authority of God's Word that God's words are trustworthy and true. And that God had the Apostle John write these things down is no small thing. For in this we find at least two points of application. Namely, in that this is a promise to be believed and then proclaimed. A promise to be believed and then proclaimed. These words are trustworthy and true, it says. In other words, you can take it to the bank and thus bank your life on what God is revealing here. Implicit here is the call to trust what's being said and to trust Him who says it. And so when we appear before God in glory, what will we say? What will be our response when we arrive to experience the new heavens and earth, the new and holy city, the newness of creation and new life itself? What will we say? Could it be, if you're like me, that you'll wonder in those moments what you have ever done to deserve such grace and glory and why you didn't do more when you had the opportunity to which God will say my dear child what made you think you could ever do anything to deserve this. This 
is not a wage to be earned. This is a gift to be received. And this gift is to be received today. Today. And so we're praying as a music team. We're praying before the service this morning. And part of our prayer was, God, help each one of us to see ourselves in this story so that we can receive your grace today and live by your grace all of our tomorrows. The world is progressing toward a great conclusion of God's choosing where all of God's people will live with Him under His rule and blessing. But such living begins now. In fact, to wait until then will be too late. And so I can't help but wonder, just wonder, if there is some, someone in this room who is trying to live apart from God under their own rule, in their own strength. And yet in your heart of hearts, you're unsatisfied. You may have moments of satisfaction, but they're fast fleeting, and instinctively you know that you were made for more. Life with God has always been a gift. Always. Beginning with creation. By grace, God created. Even when humanity turned from Him, God was gracious. By grace, God provided for our sin and guilt. By grace, He promised a Savior. And by grace, the Savior has come. By grace, Christ was born. By grace, He lived among us. By grace, He died for us, bearing our sin in His body on the cross, paying willingly, paying the full price of our redemption by grace. He rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death once for all. By grace, He gives His Spirit to indwell and empower us. By grace, He intercedes for us even today from heaven on on high. Jesus Christ is praying for you even today. By grace, God gives the the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ to all who trust Him and who will continually entrust themselves to Him. And and so the grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation should frame, should it not, every aspect of our lives today. 
And we've been waiting over 2,000 years for Jesus to come again, and yet here we are assured that we will not wait forever. And therefore, as the Scripture declares in 1 Peter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, allow future grace to inform your present response. And believe. Listen, the very reason God tells us about this glorious future now is so that we would turn from faithlessness to live by faith in Christ instead. God had John write these things down because they call us to trust him. To trust in Him who is true and trustworthy. But not only is this a call to faith, I think it's also a promise to proclaim. That is, it's meant for us and for others too. You know, we're just one week away from Christmas morning. And the very heart of the Christmas message is the fact that God in Christ did not keep to Himself, but instead emptied himself in order to serve a fallen humanity. He came to seek and save us. To save those who in going their own way had in fact lost their way. And we who hope in Christ are likewise commissioned by Christ to share the reason for our hope. I've got to share with you something that was such an encouragement to me, and I want to share it with you as an encouragement for you. Last Saturday morning, just a week ago yesterday, our own Jeannie Dedman hosted an event for her neighbors, what she called a birthday party for Jesus, complete with invitations, decorations, treats, and gifts. And about 10 of her neighbors came, most of them who had never heard the gospel. But they did that morning as Jeannie talked about the birth of Christ, what it means, why it was necessary, and what, what it results in. She talked about what it accomplished, what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus guarantees. And who knows, who but God knows the fruit that, they, that one day may be found in heaven because of a simple birthday party for Jesus thrown in his name. Beloved, we have good news to share. If creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is to frame each aspect of our lives, 
does it not also help and inform the lives of others? Shall we who have received God's gift of grace keep it to ourselves only? No, of course not. Let us instead, like Jeannie, join in God's saving work by bringing the gospel to those whom God has providentially placed in your lives. You know, in a moment we're going to sing Joy to the World. It's a Christmas favorite written by Isaac Watts, a classic carol that celebrates the coming of Christ. But as you may or may not know, did you know that it's not primarily about his first coming, but his second? It's based on Psalm 98, which talks about making a joyful noise unto the Lord who comes to judge the earth with righteousness and equity. And so there is great joy in knowing that Jesus has come, right? And I don't want to rob you. I don't want to rob you of singing joy to the world each Christmas. We should sing joy to the world each and every Christmas. It is a timeless Christmas carol. But as great as the joy is that Christ has come, greater still is the joy in knowing that He is coming again, right? As much as we rejoice over His first coming, the joy to be shared at the dawn of His second is infinitely more. And listen, as those who live in the space between His first and second comings, as those of us who live in this space, it is our charge to share this joy with the world so that many people in the world will come to rejoice in Jesus as we do. Does anyone disagree with this? Can I get a witness to this? Do you believe this? As those who live in this space between Christ's first coming and His second coming, we're in this middle space. It is our charge to share this joy with the world so that many in the world will come to rejoice in Jesus as we do. Let me hear you. The people of old looked forward to the first advent. We await the second. Simultaneously looking backward and forward to rejoice in God who promised to save, who has saved, who is saving, and who will save to the uttermost at the consummation of all things because that which God has begun, He will perfect for the glory of His name and the everlasting good of His people. Amen. Oh, what joy, God. Increase, enliven, inspire our joy this morning our joy in Christ and in the realities of our redemption, our joy in His first coming, our joy that awaits His second. And may this joy be so abundant, so full, 
that it just spills out over the nooks and crannies of our lives and that others could not help but see and give us grace, courage, faith, initiative, boldness to share the reason for the hope that lies within. We bless you. Amen.